I mean, it's the advice that we give to creators. Just get started. Perfection is the enemy of progress. Don't wait. Just start putting it out. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we haven't seen all of the budgets go to TikTok yet. Hey, Leah, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Alessandro, I'm good. It looks like uh, we're both raining weather outside, bad weather outside today. So um, LA yep. and New York. Yeah, it's not helping today. I was like, you know, <laughs> I, I needed a sunny day, please. And at least we get used to that, right? But in your case, in California, in Santa Monica area, it's, it's not the same, right? Usually it's really It's sunny. more unusual. I hear people are canceling <laughs> meetings today, um, wow. <laughs> staying inside. So yeah, it's it's a big deal here. But hopefully we'll bring bring the sunshine on the podcast. Absolutely. I love, I love it. I love the energy. So first of all, usually I start asking, you know, a bit more about yourself. What is your career? What you have done so far? And also what are you up lately so that the audience can know more about you? And then we're going to go in the news, what is happening later in the industry and so on. And there's a lot happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, so essentially, I started in uh, journalism, in media, moved over into marketing. Um, the first campaign I ever worked on was a partnership between Lionsgate and Yahoo um, Strategic Solutions Team. And we did a huge live stream with uh, Jennifer Lawrence from The Hunger Games and Marissa Mayer, who was the head of Yahoo at the time. Um, so as you know, the first campaign to ever kind of pitch and produce, that was a great one. Um, then I kind of moved over, that was really more traditional entertainment, moved over into influencers, creators, influencer marketing, um, and then started teaching aspiring influencers um, at UCLA. And then working with an influencer turned entrepreneur for her company, um, became chief marketing officer for her business. So I really went from working, you know, hiring influencers, understanding campaigns from the brand side, and then working with influencers and seeing it from their perspective. So I think now most of my work revolves around understanding what creators or influencers are looking for, um, how to make deals more appealing to them, because I understand, you know, what are the concerns uh, and the things that they, the goals that they have. Um, so thinking about it kind of from a 360 perspective of, of looking at both sides. And then of course, understanding also, you know, what does the audience want? So I think there's always that balance of like, there's the brand, there's the creator, and there's their, the audience, and you're, you're trying to, you know, satisfy all three. Fantastic. Yes. I mean, like the point of view from like both or even more angles, right? It helps a lot. I'm realizing that sometimes brands only see on the corporate side, content creators only look at their like creative side. And sometimes having both or even more of like, you know, point of view there helps a lot, yeah. right? To get the right content that is good to watch, but also can convert, right? And, and you need yeah. a little bit of everything, right? And uh, and you also collect all this information in a, in a newsletter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, I started a newsletter. It, primarily, it was mm -hmm. for my students. Um, things were just happening. As we all know, things change so quickly. Things happen so quickly. Um, I started putting out a weekly newsletter for my my students and some of my clients, just updating on them on what was going on, um, and then just opened it up to, to everyone. So every Friday morning, in case you missed it, is the newsletter. And it's recapping, you know, what's happened during the week, whether it's platform updates or creator trends, campaigns, mm -hmm. um, and then also looking at sort of why things are working. So I like to take if there's something, for example, the recent Tarte trip, uh, influencer trip, you know, I, I actually thought that was a positive thing. 
Um, and so I kind of went into and broke down the trip and why I thought it was a good idea and what they were doing made sense to me. So trying to keep everybody updated and, um, you know, we know things just happen so quickly and change so quickly mm-hmm. that uh, it, it can be hard to stay on top of everything. Of course, I love it. I also love the idea that you started like more internally type of thing, you know, for a really super niche audience. Then it's like, oh, this might be, you know, interesting also for others, right? And it's what I also yeah. say all the time to, to people, like start really small, test out, you know, like with something that hasn't had to be perfect, thinking just like I want to launch it live, you know, to a, maybe yeah. a, a smaller group of people. Once you see there is enough traction and people give you good feedback, then it's like, okay, maybe I can open up to, to more people, right? So it, I mean, it's the advice that we give to, to creators too, is like, just get started. Yeah. Um, you know, what is it like perfection is the enemy of, uh, progress, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, I think I'm mangling that expression, <laughs> yeah. but it's essentially like, don't wait, just start putting it out. And if you look at the first couple of newsletters, again, it was for a very small audience. I didn't mm-hmm. really think about that. I was going to be sharing this, um, you know, openly kind of with anybody that wanted to subscribe, um, or for the industry. And so the first couple of versions of the newsletter are just, I, it, they're all over the place. There's no graphics. I mm-hmm. don't have a logo. Like it's just a mess. Um, but now this is two years later. So, you know, now like I've gone through several iterations of the logo. There's one that I'm finally happy with. Um, just starting to get some sponsors. Um, mm-hmm. so now it's kind of turned into a thing, but I think at the beginning, like you said, it was really, um, I had a very kind of like small niche audience that I intended this for, and it's just, it's taken on a life of its own and just kind of grown. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just have to get started. So. Totally. Totally, totally. I mean, like many people don't know how many platforms started as a Google Sheet, maybe with like just unstructured data. And then after a while, you know, iteration after iteration is like getting a bit better. And then it becomes a website that becomes like so much more. So, but I, I love the idea of like, just do it, put it out there, don't wait. And then you're going to just make, you know, like some improvement day by day, you know, just learning from yep. that. So you just keep uh, iterating. Exactly. And so um, one day in social media, what I tell the time is like one year in every other industry, right? Like one day in social media can happen so many different things, uh, uh, new features, uh, other features are changing, battles between social media to get the attention of the people and so on. And already in the past, I would say two weeks, uh, many things happen, right? And uh, I have selected some for for you, okay? I would love to have your comment on those, right? So this, this episode is going to be a bit different than the others. We're going to go really like one next to the other, you know, uh, really energetic on each of the different items there. We're going to touch base on different uh, topics. And then we're going to go more in, you know, the creators and also the education side and so on. And then, you know, anything else that we would like to chat about. But um, a couple that got my attention is, so for the first one is that Instagram after, you know, Facebook, they, they basically kill their live stream shopping, right? Features. So uh, they test it out for a while and then now it's not there anymore, really. So my question for you is like, why is that? Like, in, in, uh, isn't it a bit of a maybe weird timing, uh, you know, to, to go and make it disappear, something like that? Or do you think that actually now is the time for them to focus on something else? That's a really great question. And there's not a whole lot of insight into why they killed uh, their shopping. I did see that Business Insider had an interview with somebody who used to work at Instagram, um, who essentially chalked it up to them being impatient. They didn't see enough traction quickly enough. And so they decided to kill it. I think it's short sighted. I don't think that they ever put the the resources into, um, you know, letting creators know how to use uh, you know, shoppable live streams or mm-hmm. educated or trained the audience into understanding, you know, 
uh, maybe not understanding how to engage with the influencers, but or creators, but at least um, you know gave it more of a chance. And I think really kind of like warming the audience up. Uh, you know, all of the platforms, Instagram, but certainly all of them release a lot of new features all the time and then remove a lot of features. Um, mm -hmm. And I think some things never get the attention that really they need to be able to kind of like train people a little bit more into, into using them. I think of Instagram guides. I love guides. Hardly anybody knows about guides. It's a great uh, feature or product on mm -hmm. the platform, but nobody uses it and there's no education or training around it. So it yeah. just kind of sits there. I'm surprised they haven't removed that. I assume that like there's very, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot to kind of maintain them. So they just let it be. Um, I think with shoppable live stream, maybe there were too many resources going into that and they just weren't seeing the payoff. Um, again, I think it's a little short-sighted. I think you see YouTube and TikTok are focusing so heavily on shoppable mm -hmm. live streams. We're all looking at China and seeing how the billions of dollars um, at at play there. Uh, and I think that you know a lot of people, and it's not just the platforms. I mean, it's Amazon too, and Amazon just created an Am Amazon uh, Creator Academy to help train creators to go live. Going mm -hmm. live is not kind of a, an inherent skill just because you're a creator or an influencer does not mean that you know how to, you know, host a compelling live stream um, that takes some education, some training, mm -hmm. both from the production side um, to for the delivery, um, you know, the lighting, the the audio, just all kinds of things that go into it. Um, and so I think Instagram could have made more of an effort to help its creators understand how to do this successfully and then also encouraged it more um, with audiences. So I think that they're going to regret that, um, especially if YouTube and TikTok are able to gain a lot of traction around that. And, you know, other retailers, for example, like Amazon or Nordstrom or Walmart succeed with live shopping. Um, I think Instagram will probably come to regret that. I have a feeling that it's not over. Um, mm -hmm. We will see some sort of down the road, you know, I mean, listen, Instagram and Facebook, if they see somebody else doing something successfully, that's kind of, you know, part of their secret sauce is is uh, duplicating or replicating mm -hmm. what other platforms are doing. If it's like Snapchat stories or TikTok's vertical video. Um, so I think if we do see people doing it well, I think we may see that come back to Instagram. Yeah. You know, especially when you say that I do believe that many people do not understand how much work there is behind like a live stream shopping event. And uh, and also we noticed that in China, for example, there are a lot of academies where you can learn how to become a host, right? Something that doesn't yeah. exist in the US or in Europe. So my question for you is, uh, have you had the chance to talk with some content creator about live stream shopping ever? And Quick break. This podcast is hosted by the Influencer Marketing Factory. We are an influencer marketing agency that helps brands and companies engage with Gen Z and millennials on social media. We take care of influencer identification, storytelling, creativity, negotiation, contracting, campaign management, error analysis, in-depth reporting, content boosting, and much, much more. Are you interested in learning more? You can find us at theinfluencermarketingfactory.com or you can Google The Influencer Marketing Factory. Yes, I would say two things. One, just about what you mentioned about the, the, um, the host academies in China. Um, as mm -hmm. I mentioned, Amazon actually has just started a... I would say kind of an online, it's it's certainly not an entire academy where they bring people in, but they're, they are giving training to creators. So I think that they're seeing the importance. In terms mm -hmm. of the creators that I've spoken to, and I've worked on some 
shoppable live streams. Um, it wasn't uh, immediately apparent how to tag the product into the live stream. Um, so mm. it was a little bit of a challenge. The live stream was fine. I was doing it with somebody who was very talented at live streams and and happened to be um, you know very good at being sort of uh, spontaneous and being able to ad lib in the way that you have to in a live stream. Um, the the biggest problem was just tagging the product into the live stream. And so that only we only figured out how to do it about halfway through the live stream broadcast. Um, so I think that's probably something that, again, like we talked about, there are difficulties with mm -hmm. production, whether it's on the creator's end of making sure you've got a good Wi-Fi connection, you know, the lighting, the audio, um, then you've got to have the delivery and the personality to be able to go live. But then there's also, you know, the platform um, and kind of like the back end of being able to bring in the product so that you're able to display the product under your your live stream. Um, and and that was actually the biggest challenge um, that I've had so far with the live streams. Um, but I think, you know, there weren't a lot of creators that I either work with or kind of like speak to um, that had actually played with it all that much yet. So I'm not even sure that people understood the potential or how to use it. And it was kind of gone before people had really gotten a chance to to get used to it or even to try it for the first time. So um, mm -hmm. I think that there just wasn't enough attention. There wasn't enough education. Um, and it was just more complicated than a lot of uh, influencers were ready to deal with on their own. They have so many other things to, to think about yeah. and to do and types of content to publish. Um, and this one just uh, it flew under the radar and then disappeared. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, again, a big opportunity. We've been seeing what is happening in other countries. So definitely interested yeah. to see what is going to happen later. And, uh, you know, talking about opportunities also still from Meta, for some people, it's an opportunity. For some others, uh, it's actually the opposite. It's about the the new monthly verified, you know, like subscription, right? That we just introduced like these days. What do you think about that? Oh, okay. This is my favorite topic this week. So Meta Verified, right. So it came out, yeah. you know, uh, I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Adam Masseri announced it that they're now going to be offering verification. They're starting in Australia and New Zealand. They're going to test it there first. There's two prices for paid verification. One yeah. is if you sign up, uh, you know, through web or one is through if you sign up through iOS. My issue with paid verification, it's not a terrible idea. I think it's going to become the cost of business. I think for any professional creator or influencer, they're going to want that check mark. That check mark really mm -hmm. is like a symbol of validation, a symbol that you are a professional creator. And I think if you're a brand or a marketer and you're working with a creator, in, you know, influencer, you want them to be verified. I think my two issues that I have with the paid verification and how I wish they had rolled it out a little bit differently. One is that part of paid verification uh, promises increased reach and visibility. The issue with this is it's great if you are verified, it's great if you're able to pay for verification. For people who aren't able to pay for verification, whether we're talking about like up and coming or emerging creators or people in developing nations, it really kind of, it gives people who are able and willing to pay an unfair advantage that they now have more visibility and reach. So the people that are gonna show up on the explore page are gonna be people that are able and willing to pay for verification. So I think we're gonna lose out on the voices uh, or the creativity of people that are unwilling or unable to pay for verification. So I really wish that they hadn't tied that to visibility and reach. I think it removes the incentive for people to create quality content. It's basically just 
I'm paying, you know, of course, it doesn't mean that somebody who pays and puts up terrible content or misinformation is necessarily going to get put into explore, but it certainly doesn't help the creators that aren't able or willing to pay for it. The other thing that I really question is that part of paid verification now guarantees support from a real person. We all know uh, that, you know, contacting people at Facebook and Instagram is very tricky. Even if you're spending millions of dollars, it's still the, the level of customer, the access to and level of customer support is really a struggle. You know, you talk to anybody that a smaller creator or a smaller business, for example, um, who've lost access to their account, who've been hacked or whatever happens, you know, and there's no support there. There's no support for those people. I think, you know, Customer support is a basic service and should be free. And the fact that we're now going to have to pay for it, that's kind of problematic. I also question, like, who are these people that are going to provide customer support? Meta just laid off 11,000 people. Where is the staff coming from that is going to provide this creator support? You know, I've worked with a lot of influencers, a lot of creators from nano to micro to mega. And, you know, a lot of them, even the people that have one, two million followers do not get customer support. So I just don't see how they're going to be able to provide this. I don't understand where this customer support is going to come from. So I think that to me is one of the most problematic. It definitely makes it worth paying for, you know, to be able to have somebody to contact and have help with issues. But I just I have a hard time seeing how Meta is going to be able to deliver on this particular aspect. And so this started from Twitter. Now Meta is doing that on Instagram and also Facebook, right? Yeah. Because you can also apply there. Yeah. You think that TikTok is the next one? I think it depends on how it goes. I think TikTok's going to be looking very closely. Mm. I don't think it was all that successful on Twitter, Twitter Blue. We yeah. haven't seen kind of widespread adoption. I don't think it's a significant revenue generator. Um, there's a lot of backlash against what you know Facebook and Instagram are doing, and it kind of remains to be seen. I think if it is successful, and unfortunately, like I said, I don't think a lot of creators have a choice. They're essentially going to have to do it. Um, because it just proves it kind of gives them that validation and that credibility that you want if you're working with brands. So I think TikTok is probably weighing its options. I'm sure they haven't made a decision. They're going to want to see how it goes for Instagram. It didn't go well for Twitter. I think once you know they see how it goes for Instagram, it's a possibility. So yeah, it we'll have to wait and see. But it does definitely seem that that's the direction that we're moving in, you know, to be able to play on these platforms, you are now going to have to pay uh, if you're working at a professional level. Interesting. Yeah, I'm also curious to see what is happening. But lately, I can see that a lot of social media are some someone is doing something like really, um, almost like, you know, shocking the others, but at least it's open up new opportunities. And others are like, okay, Someone has done that. Let me also replicate something similar. And then others are going to wait. So some social media are like early adopters now, right? Type of thing. And then others are coming along, testing out their, you know, on their waters and everything. So uh, it's, uh, it's, I would say it's interesting now that before they were like mostly looking at features. Now it's almost, almost like changing on the behavior of the people and changing like the narrative, right? So that is also something interesting to to look at, right? I would say it's not it's not just feature based because of course it's a feature, but it's about also how people feel, right? That if they have to pay for something or like it's interesting that you say that it's changing people's <laughs> behavior because I know you know Adam Masseri, the head of Instagram, keeps saying people are going to talk to friends and family and close connections in DMs and stories, but mm -hmm. part of that is because they've changed 
you know, the feed where you don't see the people that you follow anymore in the feed. And so the best way to keep up with the people that you're close to is to go to those kind of closed environment, closed communities, whether it's through DMs or stories. So yes, that is where people are going to connect with the people that they actually know. But also Instagram had a hand in shifting our behavior away from the feed and, you know, making the feed more about creators and brands and more kind of the, the, the place that you shop or, you know, follow your favorite creators and get inspired. And then like moving the conversation with close friends to stories and DMs, like essentially they changed our behavior and shifted, made us shift our attention there. So it's, it's definitely, it's, it's changing for sure. And and something else also that was introduced, like just in the past days, it's also the new Instagram channels for updates, right? It's a, it's a one too many is the, idea of broadcasting, right? Um, right? Similar to, I would say, maybe WhatsApp for business or certain Discord channels, for example, uh, especially for certain creators. How do you feel about that? Like, do you think there is an, uh, um, not, like, a way to go back to the basics of like organic reach? And, or, or do you think that uh, when it open up to the public might be, you know, backfire, for example, because everyone is start going to receive like too many messages like how do you how do you envision that and also my second question is if uh, a creator out there or a brand is listening what would be the best way to use this new type of channels in order not to spam only but actually to inform your audience channels is interesting i could see it working for people like really big select kind of more traditional celebrities athletes politicians somebody that has an announcement or essentially wants to issue a press release and put out that information. Um, so in that case, I could see it being useful. Maybe if a company wants to make an important statement, but you know, nobody signed up for social media to read press releases. So I think that idea of kind of like the one-to-many broadcast is inherently the opposite of why we go to social media and the conversations that, you know, the many-to-many that we conversations that we have. Um, also giving people a voice customers or followers can't comment on the channel. All they can do is like posts or, you know, engage with posts in that way, or they can vote on polls, for example. The problem that I see there is it being abused, like you said, by companies, for example, that are just going to put out these regular blasts um, of, you know, we think this is interesting. We want you to buy this. We want you to do this. Um, You know, read this note from our founder, for example. And I think that, you know, unless there's some real value for the audience there, I could see that becoming very quickly turning into kind of more of a spam channel that gets ignored. Again, the, the, the people uh, or the brands that I think are going to have um, more luck with this are going to be b- people or brands with built-in fandom, like sports teams, um, mm-hmm. giving an update about like when the game is on or what's happening during the game. Um, you know, a celebrity, for example, letting people know their movies out. I'm thinking like a politician who has like an important statement to make. But I think I would caution brands from going too heavy on channels. I think that it's really ripe for abuse. And I don't mean abuse like, with you know, I don't think people have ill intentions, but I just think that, you know, your communications team is going to look at this as like, great, we're able to put out this message. Nobody can comment. We don't get any negative responses or trolling to this. So it's almost like an ideal format for a company to be able to release information, but it's not necessarily the way people want to engage on social media. And I think that a lot of the you know, average kind of like general, you know, audience or users on social media are going to be very turned off by the fact that it's no longer a conversation, um, but really a a broadcast blast. 
or a megaphone blast telling them information um, and not giving them an opportunity to really have any kind of like deeper engagement. Yeah, that reminds me a bit, you know, like community and some other tools on SMS, right? You were able to subscribe and get like, as you said, usually from celebrities, Mm -hmm. singers and athletes, right? Like more on that side than necessarily influencers, right? And uh, I don't know if that works well or it was just like enough, you know, just like a phase. Uh, But, uh, you know, talking about celebrities, right? And athletes and singers. And so more on the traditional media, right? Uh, we also that this year on the Super Bowl, right? Uh, you know, uh, ads, a lot of people complain that it's not that creative anymore. You don't really find anything that is that either funny or engaging, for example. And some people saw content creators finally get in there. So, you know, yes, still a majority of celebrities, but someone, you know, up, some some appearances there, you know, Jack Paul, for example, commercial with 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 uh, Prime, for example, we saw a little super quick cameo of Mr. Beast. There was like maybe a second and many people missed that unless you went up on YouTube and, and searched for that. So uh, do you, first of all, what do you think about like these years, like, you know, ads on the Super Bowl? Do you think that uh, is it decreasing somehow because people are expecting something different, uh, first of all? And also, why do you think that... Uh, um, it's still a bit difficult for content creators after that they have been for a while out there, you know, still being, you know, on the corner somehow, like still not getting that seriously as the typical celebrity. Is that because of uh, like the public still seeing them as a hobby or? Yeah. We're still not seeing, I totally agree with you. We're still not seeing like a really good integration of like traditional Hollywood media and content creators. Um, I didn't think the Jake Paul thing was all that creative. I think he was the one that produced the Prime ad. um, And it really just seemed kind of like maybe a highlight reel, which when you're Mm -hmm. watching the Super Bowl, you're really expecting something clever, funny, over the top. Um, I'm trying to think of the one that Serena Williams was in, which was the um, Caddyshack, sort of playing on, she did a Caddyshack commercial, playing on like an old movie and kind of like that nostalgia. There's that issue that I don't think that they've really successfully incorporated creators. It's two different audiences. I think, you know, the people that are producing the Super Bowl ads are probably, I would say, late, you know, kind of geriatric millennials or Gen X. So those are the people in charge. I think they're leaning heavily on the nostalgia of like the movies, the shows and the concepts or humor that they remember. So, you know, give it 20 years, will Gen Z have a different sense once Gen Z is producing the Super Bowl commercials and running the Super Bowl? Are we going to get, you know, it's going to be all creators and it's going to be Addison Ray and uh, Charlie D'Amelio and, you know, Emma Chamberlain, for example. Um, So I think there's kind of like a generational shift right now where creators and influencers aren't really who the Super Bowl um, commercial producers are thinking of to put in their commercials. Uh, When they do put somebody in, you mentioned Mr. Beast. He was actually one of the top searched um, Google, sorry, the top search Super Bowl commercials on Google, but people searched for Mr. Beast. They didn't search mm. for the commercial. So I don't think that that was a win necessarily for the commercial because people didn't remember what the commercial was about, who the brand was. They were really just looking for, oh, I want to see, you know, that, that footage of Mr. Beast. So I think there's really a disconnect that we haven't figured that out yet. You know, Mr. Beast, I did notice he joked on Twitter something about like, give me $7 million and I could have, you know, done a a Super Bowl commercial. (laughs) Um, That I would have been interested in. Mr. Beast specializes in entertainment. Like that, that's his Mm -hmm. thing. You know, it's really, um, he understands whether it's like 
the the thumbnail, the title. I mean, he just puts so much time and effort into thinking about what's going to capture people's attention. I would have been interested in a Super Bowl commercial from him. I think it could have been interesting. But again, I don't know if the Super Bowl audience is necessarily the same audience that goes to YouTube. Um, certainly, there's going to be overlap, but I'm not sure that it's like the primary audience that goes to YouTube and enjoys his sense of humor or his, you know, his concepts mm -hmm. about what entertainment are. And I think right now it's, it's really, it's a generational divide between what Gen Z thinks of as entertainment and humor um, and what, you know, older millennials and Gen X and boomers think of as entertainment. And for right now, I think it's still uh, traditional talent. I will say, I think there were some good TikTok ads. Um, one of the ones that I thought did a good job of kind of bridging a TV commercial and a TikTok video was Elf Cosmetics that worked with mm -hmm. Jennifer Coolidge. Um, and I'm not sure that that ran during the Super Bowl or it was just around the Super Bowl. I thought that they did one of the best mashups of it looked like a TikTok video, but it had Jennifer Coolidge. So there was kind of like both elements of traditional celebrity TikTok first or TikTok focused content. And so I think theirs was one of the best one that managed to to mesh those two cultures together. The others either felt like Jake Paul, it felt like a YouTube mashup uh, or, you know, YouTube retrospective, or you had all of the more traditional actors, uh, Will Ferrell in a Adam Driver in a TV commercial. So I didn't really think that there was a lot of good overlap between kind of digital and, uh, you know, old school media culture it might change uh, generally speaking later on and you said the people that are like you know watching youtube might not be the same age for example that uh, like watching the super bowl on tv for example and so I, I think it makes sense like you know every era right has their own style and sometimes not just because something is working well on social media then you have to you know necessarily do it for the Super Bowl when maybe, again, the audience is not, you know, sharing the same, uh, even the same humor, right? Uh, sometimes you might miss completely yeah. if you do something that is like a really, like a Gen Z meme type of thing. And then if you show it to someone maybe in their 60, they're like, what is this? I don't get it. Yeah. Is a friend of yours? It doesn't translate. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right. And talking about like different type of ads, Paris Hilton came out with a 10 minutes TikTok ad, vertical video. And, um, this made me thinking about, for example, you know, um, and this is like a, a main topic. It's like, what is happening nowadays, like to maybe short form fatigue, for example? Is it people like, you know, do they want to see more? Do they, do they care more about storytelling and vlogging? I'm thinking about, you know, China and Indonesia that when you go on certain apps, you start in vertical, but you can actually watch TV show or even movies, uh, either in vertical or horizontal, right? You can move. TikTok is trying to do that sometimes with maybe with live, for example, sports events. Sometimes I go in lives and I see sports events happening and you can go in horizontal and watch it like it's like a normal, let's say, YouTube or Twitch video, right, for example. And so what do you think about this ad? Uh, you know, like, are we are we entering a new era? Is this just like an experiment? How How did you feel about it? I think it's an experiment. I think I admire that Hilton was one of the first, if not the first, to do a 10 minute commercial. I respect that they had Paris Hilton and a bunch of other creators in the 10 minute video. Um, so from that kind of perspective, I thought, oh, this is 
like novel and a good idea. When I watched the video, um, I fast forwarded through most of it. I think it would have benefited from kind of like maybe slightly funnier, tighter skits and tighter editing. I don't think they needed 10 minutes to tell their story. Mm -hmm. So I think they benefit from being one of the first out of the gate with a 10 minute ad. Do I think the majority of brands, if they put out a 10 minute ad are going to get any visibility? No, I think you have to have really epic storytelling and talent involved to be able to do a 10 minute ad. It really should be more of a show or, you know, if you were going to have multiple creators like Hilton did, and I, I like the concept, like I thought it was a good concept of like, we've got 10 minutes, let's put, I don't remember how many they had, but what are it was like five or six or seven creators and each one did kind of like their own thing within the 10 minutes. Um, I thought that that was really clever. But if you were going to do that, it felt like some of them were just going on and on and really were just trying to fill mm -hmm. time versus like, okay, I've got a really funny or informative or interesting bit for 30 seconds. And that's what I'm going to do. It just felt like, okay, we are going to give you two minutes. Um, and we need you to fill that time. So there was just like a lot of extraneous information or scenes that didn't really need to be there. Um, so do I think we're going to see like, you know, new um, 10 minute ads. I do not think so. Um, one thing though, that I, I am kind of interested in looking at, there's a creator called um, Gabby Dalkin and her, she, her handle is what's Gabby cooking. She's a YouTuber, Instagrammer, TikToker. Um, she has a line of uh, foods at Williams Sonoma, some sort of co-branded products. Um, does a lot of collaborations with people. She just started working with QVC and HSN plus and doing, I was really interested to see, she started talking about it and I thought, okay, is she going to just go on and it's like live selling? No, she's doing essentially what amounts to almost like a food network episode um, on these platforms. And I'm watching it very closely because I, I talked to her about it. I was so interested. So I reached out to her and she, she was very graciously kind of like agreed to talk about it a little bit and of what she was doing for them. And I said, like, are you going to be selling product? And she said, not right at the, at the beginning, but keep watching. What I have noticed is they've already started doing, there's like a lower thirds on the video that sells a particular pan that she's using. So what I'm thinking that this might evolve into is some sort of, product pop-up that appears as she's making a recipe, talking to her celebrity friends. The whole concept is she goes to a celebrity friend's house and makes a meal with them in their kitchen. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to watch. It's a show essentially, or kind of an episodic series of her going and making these meals. You can follow what she's cooking, make it. She's very personable. She comes across really well on camera and they're going to do, I think, more subtle product placement. You know, we expect like HSN or QVC is really kind of like in your face, hard sell, you, they're showing a product and selling that product. This is opposite. This is going to be more product integration into what's essentially a creator show. Um, so that's the one that I'm most interested in. And I think has the greatest chance of succeeding and kind of like setting a model for what other brands can do versus we're going to make a 10 minute commercial and just keep telling you why you should buy our product. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. And, uh, and do you think that, uh, so this, this was mostly vertical video, right? The one that you're referring to the, the, the shows, uh? The, uh, on the HSN QVC, they actually did it as, um, horizontal video. It's actually kind of landscape old school style. Yeah. And do you think that, um, and do you think that we might go 
so YouTube, right? You are in YouTube Shorts, and what I usually do it is that sometimes I go, uh, I click on Shorts, I watch many Shorts, and then maybe go back to the home. I see, I watch like a horizontal video, and then from yeah. that I might find a related video that is another short that I go back right in that. So yeah. it's horizontal, vertical, horizontal, vertical, and so on. And so on. <laughs> do you feel that that could happen also on TikTok? Or is TikTok just going to stay on vertical? Like, have you had the chance to talk with either talking with creators or also other users? How do they feel it? Like if they're going to maybe push it to longer content? And I'm thinking about, for example, again, you know, I said before the, uh, the, the you know, uh, example of uh, Indonesia. And I know that, for example, they do a lot of uh, TV shows uh, similar to like, you know, sort of telenovelas, like where you can actually go and watch many episodes and they are in vertical, but the same concept could also work like going in horizontal because they are a bit longer, right? Uh, do you think that's something that could work in the in the US, for example, or or not really? It's possible. I mean, I, you know, I know TikTok is pushing longer form content. They just came out with a new creator fund and part of that creator fund mm -hmm. To be eligible, you have to make more than one minute videos. So I know they're pushing longer content. Uh, I just don't know that it's the user behavior to switch your camera, you know, to turn your phone um, horizontally, vertically, even though, as you said, a lot mm. of times we go back and forth between the two. I don't see it happening on TikTok. I think that they've trained the user to watch it vertically. I don't think that it's going to, um, people are going to switch their phone angle. What I am hearing about is really interesting technology that's taking a horizontal or kind of landscape traditional style video and being able to, using AI, zero in mm -hmm. on, you know, whatever part of the video that's kind of most compelling uh, and editing that into a vertical video. That one, I'm not sure that I have like a really great prediction. Mm -hmm. I usually feel really strongly one way or the other. I don't think that we're going to go will ever return to the landscape video. I think that like it's going to be mobile first, which means vertical. But, you know, that's just a guess, really. Yeah, I'm mostly thinking about also not just about the the format per se, but also what does it mean, right? Many people, if you, if you go out there and you ask to anyone to name you five YouTubers and five TikTokers, I'm pretty sure that the YouTubers that you are subscribed to, you remember. A lot of the times you do not remember that the, the TikTokers that you follow, right? Someone said, and, yeah. I, and I really like the idea, TikTokers sometimes are like commodities. They are part of an entertainment platform. You go there, but if tomorrow they stop posting, you forget about them, right? There is no really like a sort of attachment like between you and them because they have not enough time to tell about themselves and really tell a story and having the connections, right? While, while maybe sometimes in, on YouTube is happening. Yeah. So... You know, do, do you think that uh, TikTokers uh, will ever be able to create that strong relationship as YouTubers with their audience or will still so, remain more of a sort of entertainment platform? Yeah, I think that's interesting um, that you say it's kind of related to them not having time to establish their story or their connection with the audience. I think it has more to do with the For You page algorithm. I yeah. think that, you know, people come in and out of on YouTube, uh, even on Instagram, you're, it's much more intentional. You're going to see somebody, mm -hmm. you're going to watch something, you follow somebody because you want to watch more of them. Whereas on TikTok, because of the For You page algorithm, um, they're essentially just surfacing all kinds of content that you might enjoy um, and putting stuff in front of you that you're going to spend more time on the, you know, more time watching, more time on the app. So to me, that's really the, the place where TikTokers lose out on creating those connections with their audience um, that unless they've managed to reach kind of critical mass. And I'm thinking like the, 
you know, like uh, Elise Myers or uh, Rod or uh, Addison Ray or Charlie D'Amelio or anybody that's kind of like reached that, you know, where they've penetrated everyone's awareness um, or kind of pop culture, you know, for the smaller creators, I think it's the For You page that's really hurting mm -hmm. their ability to create and cement those relationships with the people that either want to watch their videos or even people, you know, I followed people on TikTok. I've never seen them again. I've never seen their videos. For some reason, the TikTok algorithm has decided that that's not what I want to watch, even mm -hmm. if I've opted mm -hmm. in and followed these people. Um, so I think that that's what hurts TikTokers versus not having, you know, short form video or vertical video. I think you look at Instagram and you look at the the communities that creators on Instagram have been able to build, whether it's on photos and, a, you know, photo and a caption or even reels, short form video. Um, I don't think that the format and the length matters as much as the ability to buy into somebody and, you know, have the, have the audience keep coming back to a particular creator. And that's what I think mm -hmm. is going to be, is going to make it hard. I think the potential for going viral is very attractive on TikTok. It's very buzzy. It's trendy. Ultimately, unless they change that for, you know, FYP algorithm, I think it's going to be really hard for creators to make any kind of impact on there. You know, does that benefit brands thinking about like the partnerships that they want to have. I think it's tricky. I think you just, mm -hmm. um, you're not going to find that loyalty that, you know, creators just don't have that loyalty with their communities or their followers like you do on other platforms. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we haven't seen all of the budgets go to TikTok yet. It's too unpredictable. Um, you mm -hmm. know, I talk to different people who are like advertising on Instagram and TikTok and it's just like, you know, there isn't, there just isn't that predictability there of the impact you'll be able to have. If you happen to go viral, that's great. And you could have huge success um, with one viral video, but there's no way to kind of replicate that or to be sure that you're tapping into a community that's going to keep coming back to you or an audience that's going to keep coming back to you. Yeah, forecasting will also show that, like, you know, it's, it's difficult sometimes because on Instagram, you have uh, the typical funnel, you know, you have a million yeah. and usually that is your engagement rate, that is your organic reach. After 10 posts, you already have a sort of history. With TikTok, yeah, big question mark. One day you're doing 1 million, the day after 10K, and then 10 million, and then 70,000 views, right? It's yeah. really fluctuates a lot. So, and, and no one, to be honest, goes to the following page on TikTok. I mean, I've done it sometimes right. by mistake, I guess, <laughs> like, because I was sc scrolling and I went in there and yeah. I was like, no, no, I don't want this. I went back to the for you page, you know? So, right. so I mean, that's uh, what TikTok is celebrated, right? The FYP, like yeah. they, they kind of came up with that concept. They came up with that algorithm. Um, you know, Instagram is essentially trying to copy that of like, pushing people to explore so that they can do more like interest-based curation of content. But it's almost like it's a double-edged sword. And like, like you mentioned, like Instagram, you've got a funnel you understand, whereas on TikTok, it's much harder to predict. And you also just don't have that loyalty that audiences on Instagram have to a creator and wanting to buy into that creator and their lifestyle. Um, I just, I don't think that exists as much on TikTok, unless we're talking about, like I said, like the very big TikTokers, um, Kabi Lame, um, you know, those people that are kind of like, at this point have become almost household names, or household names, at least if you have a Gen Z in, in the house. Absolutely. Yeah. Really interesting to see also like some TikTokers moving to other platforms, like for example, YouTube for their stability and for a fan base, yeah. uh, like growth and, uh, and sedimentation, right. Of their own sort of branding, right. That is quite important, especially for 
you know, brand ambassador type of things, like having the same type of like brand deals over and over during the year. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you are either excited about lately that is happening today? I didn't ask you or that we didn't discuss today. Um, like I said at the beginning, uh, I think I mentioned the Tarte trip and then there was a, a Glow Beauty trip and then there was a Fresh mm. Beauty trip. Um, I'm kind of, I do like the idea of influencer or creator trips. Um, that I think are now have restarted ever since, you know, kind of like pandemic restrictions um, have been taken away. You know, obviously, we want everybody to be safe. But at the same time, I do like this idea of they're going away um, as a from the brand side, you're really creating kind of like these deeper relationships, you're bringing these people in, it's a great opportunity to, to sell the brand to them to show them your values to show them the products and talk about like upcoming releases. Um, it's great for, you know, kind of that halo effect of having the influencers post online, um, whether it translates to actual sales, I think it kind of it depends on the company, and it depends on what you're having people post, um, you know, talking about Tarte, for example, the Tarte beauty trip where they went to Dubai, and it was very he heavily criticized because of the cost. Um, I think the cost to me was comparable, for example, to running a Super Bowl ad, um, and Tarte mm -hmm. is doing from what I can see online, at least from the available information, they seem to be doing fairly well. So I don't think the cost of the trip was not really an issue to me. I think what's important to look at too is um, you look at like an affiliate platform like LTK, like to know, and Tarte was the number two most successful brand in terms of being used, uh, affiliate links used by influencers. Mm -hmm. So clearly what they're doing with influencers is working. Their work with influencers, the way influencers are are selling them, um, you know, through affiliate links, it is definitely working. So I think a trip is a great opportunity for that. Um, so I think that that's, you know, one of the most interesting things. And traditionally, we've really only seen fashion and beauty brands do these influencer trips or influencer summits. That's something that, you know, has been around for a long time. And it used to be YouTubers and Instagrammers. Now we're seeing them, you know, do TikToker uh, creator trips. I think if you're, you know, any brand, as long as you've got the budget could really get into this. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more trips, you know, bringing creators together, trying to create more of a relationship or a business partnership with them where you're really much have a much deeper. Um, it's not just transactional. You have a much deeper business partnership with them. Um, it's also an opportunity for education. So like I said, with you know, Amazon putting out like a mini creator academy to help people go live, like provide educational or training opportunities for creators on these trips. It doesn't just have to be about like the swag and the drinking and the partying and whatever. You could create a trip that's really something where, you know, you've got guest speakers coming in, you've got panels, you've got educational opportunities. I think there's a way to make the creator trip work for any type of business. Uh, it's just, you know, Clearly, you've got to kind of want to buy into it. And you've got to have the budget because they tend to be like a fairly expensive thing. You're putting on a conference essentially for an unpaying audience uh, of creators who are coming. But I do think it's a really great way to cement those relationships um, and deepen those relationships with creators. Yeah, exactly. And even like more niche, as you said before, only a couple like you know, beauty and fashion really tapped into yeah. that. But imagine how many niche markets uh, and uh, the more you're like into a niche and the more like the right people that you can find and pretty sure that if you do like together between different content creators uh, then people might also join like other fan of the creators can join on the trip but like the, sometimes it's fascinating to think how 
in the infancy, sometimes influencer marketing, it is in terms of opportunities out there, right? For some people, it's like, oh, influencer marketing is dead. Like, no, I, it's, it's on certain things. It's still just at the beginning and sky's the limit. There are so many ways to integrate different aspects, right? So commerce with trips, with influencer marketing, word of mouth, affiliate marketing, promo codes, social commerce. Yeah. There is so much, right, that you can combine all together. So even, and I'll, I'll say one last thing, and I know we're wrapping up, but, um, Another thing that I want to tell your audience to go check out, Emma Chamberlain's Chamberlain Coffee. Go look at her partnerships mm -hmm. page. This is an example of a creator-founded brand that has done a lot of co-branded products. There's another opportunity, you know, when you say like, is the creator economy or influencer marketing dead? Not at all. Um, and that's a great example. Absolutely. And I do remember that here in New York City, uh, a few weeks ago, I was passing by a street and it was a pop-up of Emma Chamberlain Coffee. I don't know if she was there, signing like and doing pictures with fans but there was a big queue a big line outside and so i, I can see how how it's, it's incredible that certain content creators are moving and are able to move people from online to offline that is one of the biggest challenges i would say right how how, how can you influence the people to get actionable in something and go to a physical place because it's easy maybe easier sell online, but sending people to actually a cafe place, you know, during, during the day is something else. Right. So that's, yep. I would she's say really interesting one to watch. I would say so. I would say so. Uh, Leah, thank you so much. This episode was packed with information. Thank you so much for sharing like your knowledge about content creators, the influencer marketing, the creator economy, you know, in, uh, in, um, uh, as, as, a you know, in depth and also like, you know, helicopter view that sometimes we need both of them. Right. So, um, I appreciate so that. Thank for, you for joining me today. And this was the Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. And I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.